Yeah, Charlie Brown. Sorry for everyone who's got, you know, Christmas fatigue already. I know it's not even Halloween, so uh, my rule with all things Christmas is Grey Cup. Um, nothing Christmas can happen until Grey Cup is over. Uh, so we're not there yet, so I apologize. But uh, let's just open our copies of, of Scripture to First Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning I'll be reading from the uh, New Living Translation. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly, even though we were surrounded by many who opposed us. You can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure purposes or trickery. For we speak as messengers who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He is the one who examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends so that you would give us money. As for praise, we never asked for it from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but we were gentle among you as a mother, feeding and caring her for her own children. We loved you so much that we gave you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you. Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that our expenses would not be a burden to anyone there as we preached God's good news among you. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were pure and honest and faultless towards all of you who, all of you believers. And you, knew, you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he has called you into it, his kingdom to share his glory. And we will never stop thanking God that when we preached his message, you didn't think of it as words that we spoke as being our own. You accept, accepted what we said as the very words of God, which of course it was. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitate the believers of God's church in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews had killed their own prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us and driven us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by trying to keep us from preaching the good news to the Gentiles for fear that some might be saved. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you this morning that we can worship here in this place freely. Lord, we thank you that we 
live lives that are not marked by the, the persecution that Paul and the Thessalonians experienced. And we pray that with that gift that we will live out the responsibility that comes associated with it, Lord. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been meeting across this earth for many hours now in great cathedrals and in humble places, in freedom which we share and in, in terror of, of authorities in the state. Lord, we pray that your kingdom will be expanded today and that these words will be meaningful to you as we um, gather as the people called to be your people, Lord. Amen. People deal with trials and hardships in different ways. At one extreme, you have the pushers. You have people who push their frustration and their sorrow further and further under the sur surface so that they don't have to deal with the issues and can focus on being happy and content, just like this mic stand is, apparently. Uh, um, leaving these issues to fester, unresolved, and continuing to consume the person's energy, personality, and soul. At the other extreme are the Charlie Browns of this world. People who seem to have so many problems and hold them so close to the surface that it seems like if you bump into them, you're likely to pick up some of this pain and sorrow yourself. Not unlike leaning up against a freshly painted wall. One extreme denies the, rea the real presence of pain and sorrow in the world, removing any possibility of redemption and healing, while the other allows the pain to fester and grow, gaining even greater foothold in the world. Now, admittedly, I lean more towards the latter. Oftentimes, I feel myself being more like a Charlie Brown than I probably should be, wearing my struggles too close to my heart, allowing them all too often to color my decisions and my personal interactions. An example of this is the summer before I moved out here to Langley to study. Uh, it was 2009, and as I had done summers before, I found a job working for a trucking company in Winnipeg uh, in order to pay my living expenses and my school expenses. Except this year, it was a little harder to find a job. Uh, 2009 was kind of a rough year for the global economy, uh, and the North American economy was quickly grinding to a halt. However, I ended up getting set up with a company uh, which, I, which had some work that I was looking for um, that was very interesting and took me th all throughout the eastern half of the continent. And uh, though it was, very, it was more demanding than jobs I had had in the past, uh, it was fairly lucrative and interesting. I felt that God was blessing me and making it possible for me to make the significant step of faith to move halfway across the country to follow his call to study. My first trip, everything went really well. By bending some of the rules surrounding hours of service, I was able to make it to the eastern seaboard of the U.S. in near record time. I made all my deliveries. I impressed my dispatchers the first time out, and everything was going great. As an added bonus, I got to see some interesting places along the way that I delivered to, such as the campus of Notre Dame University. I was already counting the books that I was going to buy with that first check that I got that summer. However, at the end of the last day on my way out, I backed into a parking spot at a truck stop for the night, just outside New York City. As I was doing this, I bumped into a truck beside me, leaving a small mark on his uh, driver's side mirror. Apparently, this trivial situation was all that I needed to become Charlie Brown. Suddenly, everything was going wrong. I knew the Psalms well enough to know what lament looked like, and I ran with it. As, so that evening, as I sat in my sleeper, I pr doubted pretty much everything. 
including my desire and my call to attend seminary. I was a pretty big Charlie Brown. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're tempted when the other team scores just to take your ball and go home. But while I may have turned into a Charlie Brown in about 3.2 seconds, as we saw in this last week's sermon that Brad preached and also this, uh, the passage that we will explore this week, Paul is no Charlie Brown. But he was also no Stoic, removed from pain and sorrow. Within the first 16 verses of chapter 2, Paul celebrates the great thing that God has done in and through his life and through his beloved church in Thessalonica, while also addressing the persecution that they faced from their countrymen, as well as the persecution that Paul suffered from his own countrymen to the point of death. As early as the first six verses of the last chapter, Paul has highlighted the suffering of the Thessalonians as an integral part of his thanksgiving. The Thessalonians received the gospel in, in spite of the severe suffering that was part of the package deal. Paul will not let the Thessalonians doubt that this struggle is part of their faith and their faith will not suspend their suffering. There is no sitting around wondering if they were part of the true church because of these struggles. In fact, these struggles are a sign of their faith. As Gene Green points out in his commentary on the book of First Thessalonians, Paul drives the Thessalonians to see their situation from a larger perspective and to strengthen their sense of being part of a larger movement. They are not alone in their difficulties. And their experience is not unique. They can't be Charlie Browns because they are in Christ, as Paul, who is writing this letter, is full of thanksgiving also in Christ, as he writes from a Corinthian prison cell. Now, how is it possible for Paul to live such a life full of such suffering and still remain thankful? Between the suffering that Paul hints at in the, these first two chapters of this book, as well as the gruesome list of 2 Corinthians 11, how can he realistically and truly be thankful? How can we realistically be thankful in a world that's marked by such sin and sorrow? How is it possible to be thankful like Paul in the midst of less than pleasant experiences that the Thessalonians experienced and Paul himself experienced without being either naive or willfully blind? What must we, what must we do to be truly thankful in our lives without ignoring the realities of our life around us? Paul points to the source of his and the Thessalonians' ability to be realistically thankful in the end of verse 13 of chapter 2. The New Living Translation describes it like this. You didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. Instead, you accepted them, accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. The very word of God. Because it is God's word, it is grounded in God and his person. Just as our words reveal our character, so God's word reveals his character. So just as a person who is given to lie will speak words that reek with deceit, or someone who is loving and graceful will speak words that reflect this reality as well, God's words reflect who he is. And so it is at this point that we must remember two key theological concepts relating to who God is. Now, these are really big words, and Brad told me I wasn't allowed to throw around big words, especially because they represent even bigger ideas. But he's sitting down there. So here we go. These two interrelated concepts 
but that God is transcendent and God is imminent. Okay, so none of you left. We're good. Okay. Um, although the, the definitions for these words probably aren't rushing to most of your minds, if you've been part of the church for any period of time, I hope that you're at least familiar with the ideas that stand behind them. First, imminent or nearness. The idea behind imminence is that God is present in an individual's life in a real and a personal way. To be imminent means that God is uniquely involved and connected to each unique individual. In short, that God is personal. Imminence is something that our evangelical culture grasps and seems to love. Uh, Think of phrases of my life with God or Jesus and me. Imminence at its extreme reduces God to being our buddy. And so our Western culture also understands and embraces imminence in its own secular lens. Think of the emphasis upon personal values, individual rights, and personal customization. Even the most symbolic cultural icon of our age, Apple devices, hint at this desire for emphasis on uh, on imminence. With names like the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone, and my favorite, the venerable but nearly forgotten iPod. Transcendence, on the other hand, may be a less popular idea within our evangelical culture as well as the broader context. Transcendence represents the idea that God is supreme and stands outside of the limits of space and time. That God is holy and totally other. Okay, so we got through those two big words. I don't think anyone left. Uh, So that's good. With that being said, there's a wonderful illustration uh, of the conflicting theological phrase that, that represents these two ideas, and that is that God is in all things. Imminence is the concept that God is in all things in an intimate and unique way, while transcendence is the concept that God is in all things. Um, both of these are critical ideas for the Christian life and for Christian theology. We cannot have one without the other imbalanced. If we exchange one of these realities for another, we end up with an idol, which is far from the God who reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. If we overemphasize God's imminence or his nearness, we end up with a God who is the lover of our soul and our best friend, but who is unable to overcome sin in the world or transform history to bring about justice. If we overemphasize God's transcendence, we end up with an overlord who rules from afar, who may be just, but is cold and cruel. When we understand our lives in relationship to a God who is both transcendent and imminent, we are able to contextualize the sorrow and struggle of our lives without diminishing the reality of our experience. It is only by understanding ourselves first and foremost as being in relationship with God who is both transcendent and imminent, that our lives gain the meaning and context which they deserve. Yes, I said deserve. Because we have been created to be in communion with this God, who is both fully imminent and fully transcendent. If we lack this fellowship and this understanding, our lives lack the very thing that we were created for and the meaning that we so desire. As Brad discussed last week, When we understand ourselves in relationship to God as part of his kingdom and our lives as part of furthering that kingdom, our eyes are drawn up from the minutia of our lives to his grandeur. We are drawn away from the problems of our daily lives, 
from the sin and sorrow that creep into our lives and instead are drawn to the majesty of the, the sky. As Brad shared, we can look past the troubles of our daily lives and look up into the heavens. Our lives gain meaning not because of our accomplishments, the souls that we have saved, or the kingdoms we have built for ourselves, but because of the work that God is doing in and through our daily experiences. Our experiences gain significance, not because they are what we do, but because God is using them to build his kingdom. Because God is transcendent, Paul was able to express true gratitude in the midst of sorrow and hardship. Paul was no Charlie Brown. Being in relation to God, who is all-powerful, meant that God could see, that Paul, pardon me, could see beyond the misery of his own life to the amazing work that God was doing in his life and throughout the world. Yet God is not simply transcendent, reducing our lives to a meaningless smudge in time, or as if we were a simple cog in the machine of his great kingdom. God is imminent. He personally walks, walked with Paul through his trials and has intimately experienced our struggles, our hardship, and our pain because he dwells with us individually and collectively. Without a transcendent God, we fail to be able to move beyond ourselves. And so without a transcendent God, we are able, unable to experience the community that is available in the common experience of the people of God gathered by the word of God. True community, the community that we crave, can only exist when it is a community that is grounded in the God who is able to transcend space and time and gather people in him. Without God's transcendence, we become isolated, unable to form true community with our fellow humanity or our creator. We become like an old hermit, detached from society as a whole, speaking rarely and becoming more than a little peculiar. God's transcendence provides us the ability to form true community through the common experience that we, sh we share of the one who is greater than all of us. While we know that God offers community and truth through his transcendence, which is able to engage us in personal and intimate ways through his imminence, we so often choose to find our fulfillment in our own selves, in our own imminence. Because really, we just find ourselves so dang interesting. And it's way more comfortable because we think that we can control ourselves. And so it's easy to become trapped in our own imminence, focusing on our own small personal sphere of influence, our problems, our concerns, without the context that comes from the greater understanding of God's grand drama of redemption. I was reminded of this this past summer. Um, our son Alistair was a couple of weeks old and we, Carmen and myself, decided to go for a walk at Crescent Beach to take in the sunset. And about halfway through the walk, Alistair immediately had to have some dinner. Um, so, which meant that we had to find a, a park bench right away. Now, instinctively, I did what I do whenever I'm in this situation. I reached for my smartphone to catch up on personal emails, personal social media, and personal news. Totally overlooking the technicolor landscape that lay before me, and I was perfectly happy to entertain myself with things that were all about me instead of spending time with the ones that I loved, marveling at God's amazing creation. It was so easy for me to look past the things that reminded me of how vast our God is to things that were all about me and things that I felt I could control 
When we focus solely on ourselves, our struggles can easily consume us. When we look past God's imminent nature, we forget that he dwells with us and, and our struggles become meaningless suffering. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that what we need to do in our time of struggle, whether that be in our personal lives, in our church, or in our work life, is to simply focus on God and forget the rest. I'm not suggesting, as the old hymn suggests, that we should just turn our eyes towards Jesus and look upon his wonderful face and that all the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. No, I'm not saying that at all. When we understand that God is transcendent, that he reaches back into history, forward into the future, and throughout all of the created world, we gain context for our struggles. Our struggles cease to be the end of the world, but they do not become meaningless. Because God has become incarnate. God imminently exists in our experiences. And so our experiences gain meaning, having shared them with this great God that we serve. Paul's struggles in prison, his having to, to have been snuck out of Thessalonica in a basket, and being mistreated in Philippi, are anything but meaningless pain to be overlooked. Instead, they gain even greater significance and meaning in that it is the suffering it is this suffering that furthers the kingdom of God. Paul's troubles had a purpose, and Paul was able to see that. When we turn our eyes towards Jesus, the things of this earth, our pain and our struggles, do not grow dim. Instead, they stand in high relief. But this relief is not against the backdrop of our human personal experience. It is against the truly human life that we were created for. Life, including the trials that the Thessalonian church experienced, as Paul describes in verse 14 through 16, does not mean less, but more when it is lived in relation with the one who is remolding our lives and remolding our broken world into a renewed Eden. When we turn our eyes towards Jesus, the pain and sorrow of our lives do not grow dim. We see them in sharper contrast against the context of who we were created to truly be. When we stop letting our culture and ourselves define ourselves and who we are, and we allow God to define us, we are able to benefit from experiencing a life with a transcendent God. We are able to experience life in fellowship with a God who is in all and through all. We can have fellowship with a God who is beyond all measure, beyond even space and time themselves. Life with the one true God who is above all has three significant benefits that I kind of want to circle around. The first is truth. We live in a society that is actively aware of the, subject, the subjectivity of our human experience. We know that we are unable to fully perceive realities outside of ourselves and even within ourselves. However, when we live in community with God, who is transcendent, who is overall, we can trust that he is true. God is, not the limit, God is not limited to the same human finitude, the same human inability to move beyond ourselves that we experience on a daily basis. He can cut through that. When we live in community with a living God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus, we see who God truly is and thus what true humanity really is. God is working amongst us to, to expand his kingdom that exists now and will one day be fully realized. 
Our joy is not meaningless pleasure to be overlooked or ignored, but our suffering is not also simply needless pain. Instead, they are the building blocks of God's eternal kingdom, which we are a part of. After all, this is the reason that both Paul and the church at Thessalonica were able to endure the ways that they were treated. Because as Paul states at the end of verse 12, he, God, called you into his kingdom to share his glory. He called you to share his glory. Think about it. He called us to share in the glory of the one who is over all and in all. The second benefit of living in community with the one true God is a freedom from moralism. Sorry about the big words. We don't have to worry anymore about acting like a Christian. We don't have to have a great life. This is a great freedom. But with freedom comes responsibility. And this one's an even greater responsibility. Because we know that God will hold us to account, not merely for our actions, but for our motivations. As Paul states at the end of verse 4 of chapter 2, he, that being God, is the one who examines the motives of our hearts. Because God is transcendent, he will judge us fairly, true to his own loving nature. He will not get caught up in vindictive emotions, but will hold us to a true standard. We know that we are set free from acting out religious rights and tasks and are instead invited into a relationship with the one true God who is truly imminent, who truly knows us better than we know ourselves and yet loves us with the purest way possible. But there's a flip side to this intimate relationship. Because God is imminent, God knows our motivations. Because God is the judge who can peer into the deepest parts of our lives, even our thought life, God will judge us not so much on what we do and say, but why we do these things. This is the reason why Paul reminds the Thessalonians of verse 12 of chapter 2 that, we, that he pleaded with the Thessalonians. He encouraged them and urged them to live lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. You see, in the kingdom of God, who is in all and over all, actions are not the end all and be all. The ends are not the end all and be all, pardon me. The ends do not justify the means. And it's not where we end up that matters, but the path of faith that we journey on, on the way to the end, that matters. If our methods don't reflect our goals, then both will become invalid. It is for this reason that Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 5 that it is not the words that we say, our actions, or the nature of our relationships that matter, but the motivation that stand behind these. The Christian life is not about morality. It is about humility before our creator and thus humility in our relationships to our fellow creation. The third benefit of a truly theological understanding of God is true community. Because God is imminent, we know that we are truly known and truly loved as we are. We know that God is with us and that God desires to have community with us. Because God spans space and time, language and culture, we know that the God that we encounter 
in his revelation is the same God that the church fathers encountered in the first, second, and third centuries. We know that the God that we worship is the very same that Christians from around the globe, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, language groups, Anabaptists, Charismatics, high church members, we all encounter the one true God. As Jens Zimmerman from Trinity Western States in his book, Incarnational Humanism, for Christians, experiencing transcendence is not a religious relation to God, to a God who is the highest, most powerful, most good being. That is not real transcendence. But our relation to God is a new life in being there for others through participation in the being of Jesus. Our relation to God is a new life in being there for others through participation in the being of Jesus. Our experience of God's super supreme nature doesn't mean that we are primarily defined by our good works, but by the fact that we are drawn together and gathered as the people of God. This means that we can speak truth to each other and that we can love each other and be truly honest with each other, not because of our own wisdom or our good nature, but because we have encountered a truth that stands outside of us in God. This is something that I really want to implore you guys and, and thank you guys for, because this is something that I witnessed um, at the summit last month. We were able to gather and speak true words to each other. Uncomfortable words, yes. But true words nonetheless, without anger or spite, but words with truth and grace. As people who are relatively new to Jericho Ridge, this blew my mind and drew me to worship God. This, my friends, is what we are called to. We are called to a community based not on similar interests, similar lifestyle, or, but the call of God who knows us and truly loves us. Okay, so great. After all this, you've had to sit through me using big words to describe God who has called us into a relationship, but what now? Now it's your turn. Seek to know God more. There's so much to be gained. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in scripture. Seek him through the experience of brothers and sisters in Christ who God has gifted with great minds who went before us. Seeking our Heavenly Father is the only way that our earthly life will have any real meaning. Now, at this point, I'd like to call the band forward because we're going to transition to a time of worship. For those of you who are here in the midst of struggle, you have two options. You can continue to trust your, yourself or you can trust the God who knows you and knows the whole world and is bringing about his kingdom. Our struggles can be the building blocks to God's glory and God's kingdom, which Paul tells us God is calling us to share with in him. While our daily struggles matter to God, we also must remember that God will be victorious. His kingdom is coming to fulfillment. Maybe you two are ready to turn into a Charlie Brown. Maybe you're overwhelmed or discouraged by the problems you face today. Let this text, let Paul and the Thessalonian church remind you that though, through your prog that though your problems are real, know that your grief is not sinful. That God is with you in your grief. God is not far off. He intimately knows your pain and frustration. He knows these things better than you do. But as Paul showed in this passage, we face struggle and hardship in our life. But this is not what defines us. When we are in fellowship with the transcendent God, 
It is our, our usefulness does not end with our problems because God's kingdom spans history and spans the globe. Paul wrote this second chapter of this letter to the Thessalonians to remind them of how God was working despite Paul's apparent failures. So if you're like me in the back of my truck, if you're feeling like Charlie Brown, remind yourself what God has done and is doing through his kingdom. There are many ways to do this. Books on church history and biographies of famous Christians are a great way. But maybe the simplest way is to hear from those in our own community. Those Christians who have faced trouble and sorrow, and God has used them to further his kingdom through their struggles. So I challenge you this week, find a brother or a sister. They don't have to be from Jericho. It's even better if they've walked further down the path of faith than you have. Seek them out and seek to hear how God has used them to further his kingdom. If they are honest, amongst their success and their growth, they will tell you about failure, pain, and struggle. When we allow our lives to be defined by God, we cannot fail because God never fails us. Paul's life after his conversion had all the trappings of failure. He was stoned, he was hated, shipwrecked, and jailed numerous times. To the first century observer, here he clearly would have looked like a failure. And yet, through his power, God used him to write and preach the word of God, which continues to transform the world. Now, at this time, we're going to move into a time of worship, in song, and in communion. The elements will be available on either side of the stage when you're ready. Sometimes communion seems like a weird thing. It feels so individual and isolated. However, the act of communion cannot be solitary. It is not an individual thing, an experience that we can have in, our own, in the privacy of our own homes, hidden away from the rest of the world. But instead, as its very name suggests, it is a communal experience a transcendent experience, where we humbly mark ourselves as the community of faith as it has been marked for the past 2,000 years. In every corner of the globe, we gather around the bread and the cup, reminding ourselves that we, just like millions of our fellow believers, are marked with this grace, and that we serve a wonderful God. We join our fellow believers from around the globe who gather in grass huts and stately cathedrals, reminding ourselves and each other that we live in fellowship with one God, maker and redeemer of all. Behold, the body of Christ broken for you, Christ's blood shed for the redemption of your, your lives. The body of Christ broken to make us whole and gather us to each other. The body of Christ broken for you. Behold what you are, Become what you receive.